Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Mystery to Me podcast. I'm Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we love movies and television shows with a whiff of mystery. Mystery to Me will feature us riffing on murder mysteries, film noir, cozy detective stories, police procedurals, psychological thrillers, legal dramas, tales of teen sleuths, and more. Once we're done yucking it up about whatever we've just seen, we'll serve up our five-star final takes on whether it's worth your time. If you're offended by silliness, profanity, political asides, canine-related interruptions, and losers laughing at their own bad jokes, beware. Also note that some of the stories we'll be talking about are pretty dark, and in some cases exceptionally badly written. So content warning for murder, violence, suicide, torture, rape, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. If there's a movie or show you'd like for us to talk about, email us at mysterytomepodcast at gmail.com. Our show's take on genre is pretty loosey-goosey. So as long as your suggestion has some dash of mystery, we're interested in hearing about it. Spoiler alert! We're going to be discussing the entirety of this show or movie, spoilers and all. So if you want to be surprised... Press pause, go watch the thing, then join us for the show. Now that you've heard our spiel, go ahead and polish off those magnifying glasses and slip into your favorite trench coat. Let's get mysterious. What did we just watch, Anya? We just watched Satan Met a Lady, a 1936 picture. Why did we want to watch this? Well, I think it's fair to say, Kevin, that you and I both adore the picture, The Maltese Falcon. And this is based on the same story, The Maltese Falcon, with a different name and a different genre, because this was much more in the lines of a screwball comedy than a uh, noir so why didn't we just watch the Maltese Falcon? Because we hate ourselves. <laughs> we both struggle with self-loathing. <laughs> um, we wanted to see, I think, 
how you tell the same story in a very different way. I think we're both interested in storytelling. And so this was an opportunity to say the same exact story, the same exact plot, but done in a very different style. I guess there's probably some people out there who have not even seen the Maltese Falcon may not know the uh, general story. Uh, the general premise of that film, and also I guess of this film, is that a number of shady characters are pursuing a very valuable object. In the Maltese Falcon, it was a uh, little statue of a falcon which has been encrusted with valuable jewels and stuff. So it's extremely valuable. And these shady characters betray each other. They double-cross each other. They triple-cross each other. And uh, it's basically a pretty dark movie. Uh, and and, uh, and the audience's jumping-off point through all this is uh, through the eyes of a private investigator named Sam Spade, who's uh, very street-smart and is driven to really embroil himself in this mystery when his partner is murdered. Uh, at least that's in the Maltese Falcon. For some reason in this mess, in Satan Metal Lady, they changed the name to Ted Shane because I guess Sam Spade wasn't uh, wasn't good enough for, for this. And that's not the only change they made. They, they made changes in terms of the story and in terms of the tone. Should we talk about uh, the plot of this movie? Well, let's bit? talk about maybe one of the stupidest changes because the Maltese Falcon, right? It, they're looking for a, a Maltese Falcon that's gem-encrusted. Um, in this movie, for some reason, they decided, you know what? That's stupid. Let's, instead of looking for a bird, let's look for a, a horn that's filled with gems that's actually from uh, the legend of Roland, um, a medieval you know, legend, epic poem about a guy who was Charlemagne's right-hand man and died because he wouldn't blow a horn quick enough to summon help. It's a silly story I had to read in college, but... For some reason, they changed that. As as a lawyer, do you think they made some of these changes just due to copyright stuff, or what? Were they just trying to be? I can't imagine why they would do that because uh, they own the rights to the book, The Maltese Falcon. So they just thought, you know what, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna put our own spin on this. I, I think a lot of the reasons in terms, this movie has a very different tone than The Maltese Falcon. This movie tries to be like a screwball comedy which is totally inappropriate. I think the reason they went in that direction was this movie was released in 1936. Back in 1934, uh, MGM had a huge hit with another Dashiell Hammett novel called The Thin Man, which they did as a screwball comedy. So I think they thought, well, if a screwball comedy worked with one Hammett novel, let's try it with another. And maybe you can have more comedic fun you can concoct more humorous situations if you have a horn instead of a bird. Well, let's describe this movie because then you'll understand why no comedic fun at all was had today. Uh, before we get into the meat of the story, I remember you and I had some consternation. We couldn't even figure out what the title meant. Now, I have actually some thoughts on that. It's been a while since I've read it. But if I recall correctly, it begins out with Hammett describing his hero, Sam Spade, as looking a bit like a blonde Satan because he has kind of a pointy chin and kind of scary eyebrows. So my thinking is maybe somebody read that once while drunk or something and then just forgot about everything and was like, oh, he must be Satan, and then <laughs> slapped this thing together. And then he met a lady. And then he met a lady. Basically, <laughs> that's the story. <laughs> Enough said. How does the story start? This story starts um, with our hero, who is not named Sam Spade in this version, um, but is named Ted Shane, uh, showing up or actually being run out of an unnamed city. 
uh, by the city fathers because he's just caused too much trouble, Kevin. So he's being run out of town, literally on a rail. He's on the train getting out of there. And he's going back to his hometown. Are we even told what, what trouble he did? What what got him in such hot water? Honestly, I don't remember. If I blacked out, I apologize. But I, I wasn't it basically, you know, hijinks and murder. Yeah, just up to no good. So that's... You, you can't trust him. But he, he... The movie wants you, I think, to think that he's just kind of a roguish rake. Right. So he's running out of time. He goes back to his hometown. What adventures does he have in his hometown? Once he gets there. Well, he just shows up at a place where I guess he used to work. It doesn't really give you a lot of context and acts like a jerk for a few minutes and uh, makes fun of his old partner and harasses the, their secretary and calls her kitten and stuff. And Can we talk about his secretary? What did you make of this secretary? This woman is, you know, very petite, very blonde, has kind of a high, you know, girlish voice and is written to just appear... Very, very stupid. Very, very silly. Uh, so stupid, in fact, that in one memorable scene, she doesn't even remember how to spell her own name. Yeah, she seem, seems to exist for the male characters to kind of oogle and patronize and harass and abandon at various points in the film. So she it's just kind of made me sad in a number of ways. Yeah. Like, I don't really expect a 1930s flick to make me feel empowered as a woman, because I think that's just a, <laughs> a losing battle. But this seemed, I think, next level bad in terms of just sexism. Yeah, it, it, it seemed really, even in terms of this comedy, it just seemed tonally inappropriate. Certainly another sort of person you'd hire to be a secretary. Yeah, it, it, it was, it was, okay, so... And then I, I this this early scene where Mr. Shane comes back to town and it's this big thing also raises another problem I had with this movie. And I have pretty bad eyesight, so I, I acknowledge that that might be part of it. But we see his partner, and to me, his partner basically looked like a shorter version of Shane. His partner's name is Ames. Ames is a bit fussy, and Ames likes to sleep on the job, quite literally. But Ames is a, also has a mustache, also has kind of an oval face just and I joked I said you know is is Hollywood just cranking out these white guy mustache clones at the time because it just feels like everyone every other man in the movie has this look and it is very freaking confusing keeping track of who the hero is what's going on I mean I feel like we're supposed to tell them apart by their freaking hats and it's just it's impossible <laughs> Shane did have a very distinctive hat it was comically wide brimmed <laughs> <laughs> the the best detective has the biggest hat. That's the rule. That's, right. Um, but yeah, this guy is fussy. He's everything our hero Shane is not. He's just sleeping. He doesn't care, and he's not too enthused to see Shane, which is becomes hey, clear be reason later on. <laughs> to be fair, he has a pretty good reason because his wife used to uh, be romantically. And presumably sexually involved with Shane. He even makes a comment to Shane that maybe his wife would have gotten with Shane had Shane stuck around, but he didn't, and so now it's his wife. He says, guess what, Shane? I'm going to take you home to see my wife, but she isn't even going to remember you now because now she's getting the Ames action. But I'm going to tell you, Kevin, you're not really conveying this properly, but Ames is boasting, he's yelling, he's hooting and hollering in the scene where he's telling Shane so we know he's about to get hung up on his own petard. Yes, there's going to be some hoisting. He's going to get his comeuppance. 
So what does happen when Ames uh, brings Shane home and Shane and Mrs. Ames lock eyes once again? Yeah, well, obviously she is all over him. She remembers his birthday. Ames comments, she doesn't remember his birthday. So that's a a slap in the face. And uh, Shane and Mrs. Ames uh, basically start making out and just completely cucking poor Mr. Ames, who's standing in the corner pouring himself a drink, loudly complaining while this happens. He's complaining, but he doesn't seem angry about it he just used to imagine like he saw a sad trombone playing yeah he's the character equivalent of the sad trombone noise at that point i believe maybe the plot starts is that fair to say they get a get they get their kind of case from a beautiful blonde lady who wants them to track down her uh a man who wronged her which is of course the start of the maltese falcon as well and this beautiful blonde lady uh, let's note is portrayed by legendary screen actress Betty Davis. In a role she probably wanted to forget. <laughs> yeah, this was this was pretty bad, but she's in it and I feel like she's probably the number one star in this, right? Don't weren't you amazed by the performance of the Warren William or Arthur Treacher? <laughs> I don't know who these people are. <laughs> yeah, that's, we've seen this movie. It's hard to remember the names of the performers or the characters. Everything just blends together in a big dumb soup. So then Ames uh, goes out to work this Betty Davis case while Ames takes the secretary out to this bizarre nightclub where it looks like women are dancing with rolls of toilet paper. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's where our first date was, so I don't know what you're talking about. It's a very romantic tableau. Yeah, it looked like like some like Soviet era like ribbon dancer competition. Like it, it it was and and of course, you know, he he got the secretary to go out with him, but then he promptly ignores her in favor of one of the ribbon dancers who calls him daddy. Yeah, there's there is a recurring motif in the picture where Shane frequently refers to himself as Papa Shane, which I found bizarrely disturbing. <laughs> I think I think that takes a lot from a guy to start insisting that everyone calls him Papa. Insert your name here. That Papa Smurf energy. So the date doesn't go as well as Shane might hope because in the midst of the date, he gets the news that his partner, Mister Ames, has been killed. He does not seem to be particularly distraught about this. Neither does the cop who is controlling the scene because he uh, announces his partner's death by saying, don't you want to see your silent partner? Very insensitive. (laughs) Frankly, you'd hope they'd do more for the loved ones of victims. And even Shane is like making jokes like, well, this is one of the few times that uh, Ames did something in the right place because, you know, he got killed in a cemetery. And there's like a big dumb fog machine billowing fog everywhere. It just, it looks ridiculous. It looks like a bad knockoff of like a, a B-horror film. And Shane goes to this foggy graveyard to look at his partner's body and banter with the police. And then at the end of the scene, we see a hand appear holding a gun and shoot somebody, which is very dramatic. The only way it could be more dramatic is if we knew who got killed. Because there is a problem in this movie where there's frequently scenes where people get shot and it's not clear who is getting shot or why they're getting shot or what the consequences of the getting shot are. Well, frankly, this scene was so confusing to me and I was already so put off by the whole film's you know entire vibe. 
was that it looked like the gravestone itself was reaching out to shoot Shane. And I was kind of like, yeah, <laughs> he's such an asshole. I kind of get it. <laughs> like the movie itself was trying to kill itself. It was terrible. Yeah, just terrible. Oh, but then there's a really intense interrogation scene that happens next. Right, Kevin? Tell me about that. Well, of course, you know, the police are all over Shane because he was uh, sleeping with Mrs. Ames and maybe he had a motive to do his old partner in himself like five minutes after coming back into town. So they go off to interrogate Shane, who's now on another date with the aforementioned toilet paper ribbon dancer. And they corner them uh, while they're walking down the steps into some sort of speakeasy situation and uh, interrogate him there with a bunch of frustrated customers constantly pushing past them. And many of those customers are attractive young ladies, and both Shane and the police officer at times seem more interested in these attractive young ladies than the actual case. And that's a recurring problem in the movie is that nobody in the movie really seems to care about the movie or the story. Yeah, it's like a bunch of people acting really disinterested the whole time, and it gives the audience no reason to care about what's going on. I'll also note that Shane calls his toilet paper girl a hot throb in this scene, (laughs) and that really disturbed me for reasons I don't entirely understand. Oh, and of course, you know, we love Shane. He's he's the likable hero that we're all rooting for. So, of course, in the next scene, he um, berates his secretary, who he was really rude to on this date, um, and tells her to take his recently not yet cold partner's name off the door and we're supposed to be rooting for this guy and meanwhile uh mrs ames who has been widowed for less than a day appears at the office and wants to uh flirt with uh, shane everybody wants to get with this guy but of course when she just asks the reasonable question of you know did you kill my husband he shoves her down on a chair what a gent he he uh she seems to think it's a realistic, plausible possibility that Shane killed her husband. Doesn't really seem to bother her. She'd still like to get with him. And Doesn't obviously him reacting with immediate violence is a great sign <laughs> about her hunch. Yeah, of course, he just takes the opportunity to then compliment her morning clothes and say maybe she killed her husband because she looks so great in black. Lots of lots of fun to be had here. I mean, I just hate all of these people at this point. It's one of those movies where like there's no one ray of light that you can sort of latch onto to carry you through the film. Everybody is just acting odious and disinterested the whole friggin' time. Shane's next stop, go visit Betty Davis over her uh, apartments. He arrives there. I guess she's at a hotel at this point. And he arrives at the hotel just as she's leaving. So he kind of forces himself into her car, and she tells him some bizarre anecdote where she claims that the house detective at the hotel was sexually harassing her. Played for laughs, as you can imagine. It's, it's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's rich. I don't even understand what a house detective at a hotel is, but apparently it was not a good idea to have one. So then he, she's relocating to an apartment. He goes up and talks with her at the apartment. Which is, I believe, called the Creme Brulee Apartments for some reason. Because we're suddenly in Candyland. And uh, during uh, the course of that uh, conversation, the phrase phonus balonus is bandied about. Yeah, I, I, I took note of that because that's pretty great. That's probably the high point of the movie. People just saying phonus balonus, just in, sprinkling that into their sentences like that's a normal thing to say. 
Shane leaves the Sounds like a Harry Potter spell <laughs> gone gone awry. When Shane leaves the apartment, he spots Well, a- maybe we should talk at this point maybe about one of the central failings of the film. Because we've gotten to the point where Betty Davis and um Shane are interacting and this is supposed to be the sort of core relationship in in the movie. In the Maltese Falcon, the relationship between these two characters is at the emotional core of the movie. She's clearly involved in some bad stuff and he's trying to figure out what it is, but he's also starting to fall for her and it's compelling to see. It's like, can you really know the people you love? Uh, You know, the, the danger of pursuing someone new and those are the it is. It, it has the film Maltese Falcon ends up having emotional stakes, as well as the stakes of are they going to find the Maltese Falcon? Who's going to get rich? Who's going to get murdered? And this film does not. I mean, the leads have completely zero chemistry with one another. They just. It seems like they're hanging out with like you know when you interact with like a coworker who kind of annoys you. That's the kind of vibe I get from them. Yeah, that's fair. They don't seem, not only do they not seem to be attracted to each other, they don't, they don't even seem to like each other all that much. And the lines that they're given is just, I mean, it, it just cements this idea that nobody really cares about what's going on. Everything's very flip and silly and nothing really matters. So you don't really get invested in the suspense elements of the film about who's going to get murdered, who's going to get the treasure. Um, and you really definitely do not get involved in the emotional aspect because it, it just seems like two people who just can't really stand each other and just kind of giving each other dumb kind of ribbing jokes the whole time. Yeah, there's nobody to root for. There's no desired outcome. And and we we brought up the the thin man earlier. And I think that has... Why don't you elaborate on that a little bit in this context? Yeah, I think the thin man is a, is a great movie relationship. It's this married couple... You can tell, uh, you know, Nick and Nora Charles, played by William Powell and Myrna Loy. I mean, they're the kind of quintessential movie couple because you can tell that they can get exasperated with one another, but they also are head over heels in love, and they do all these kind of fun, silly couple things, and you really buy the relationship. There's that chemistry. Um, there's great dialogue. There's great lines. They're always just doing kind of silly stuff that you could see yourself doing with your significant other, and the relationship while they might discuss crime in a somewhat flip way at times, the relationship is really cemented as the center point of the film. And that's what people remember. And that's why people love the thin man. And then you can have that comedy and that kind of silly tone, but you, but you need something to put, you know, around that. And this movie, frankly, I don't think the structure of the Maltese Falcon really supports something like that. And I also think that, you know, the, um, the direction that these actors were given and, and the lack of chemistry kind of sinks this ship from the beginning. Or rather, sets this ship on fire in the harbor. <laughs> now, that's a little bit of a spoiler, unfortunately. But <laughs> Shane leaves Betty's apartment. He goes downstairs and he sees a kind of pudgy-looking man wearing a beret. And this pudgy looking man in the beret is supposed to be one of the main antagonists. I think he's supposed to be vaguely threatening. Are we supposed to be worried about this guy? I mean, what do you think? I'm worried about him with that beret choice. I mean, that's pretty intimidating. I'm worried about his cholesterol level. (laughs) 
And he also has some pretty interesting swears. <laughs> yes, the two of them start uh, exchanging banter. And at one fiery point, the pudgy beret man says to Shane that if it's possible that at some point he might have to fog Shane. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. Probably nothing good. Go fog yourself, Kevin. <laughs> Shane's retort, of course, is to call the beret a monkey cap. Oh, he also makes fun of his cigar choice and says he's smoking smelly seaweed stogies or some dumb shit like that. Maybe this is a little bit of a premature place to mention it, but in most of the scenes in the movie, Shane doesn't really seem to be showing much emotion. He doesn't really seem to care about things. His partner dies. Yeah. Nothing, everything just seems to roll off his back. Nothing really inspires him to get really angry. But something about this guy gets under Shane's skin. I mean, I relate to Shane in that case, this guy. (laughs) You don't think there's a little bit of magic there? This guy, he's got bad vibes written all over him. Because whenever Shane loses his temper in the movie, I think it always involves this pudgy man. I feel like the actors didn't like each other. and They just, (laughs) that's what we're getting. Or either that or they're like best friends. So then, of course, uh, going back to the Maltese Falcon, you know, in in that film, um, one of the key, I don't know if you can call him an antagonist or just kind of a key character, is played by Peter Lorre, famed character actor. That's a very memorable role. I think it's probably aged somewhat badly because I think he's supposed to be gay, so there's definitely some homophobic elements to it. But, I mean, that's a part of the film. That character, who's sort of a thief and sort of one of the ne'er-do-wells trying to um, seize the Maltese Falcon, um, that's something that people remember from that film, uh, kind of an iconic uh, part of it. Um, and instead of having something interesting like that in this, in this movie, <laughs> they said, well, let's just get someone who looks exactly like Shane, sans mustache, and uh, his personality will just be British. He says things on multiple occasions like, that's not cricket, and wears a bowler and carries an umbrella. And it's just, frankly, embarrassing for everyone involved. And in the first scene where they meet, uh, the, this this British man has searched the uh, Shane's apartment. Shane, by the way, has a fully furnished apartment, even though he just moved back into town like <laughs> the day before. And his fully furnished apartment is something that people can easily find the address for, even though, again, he just moved in the day before. But so he searches the apartment. He can't find anything related to this missing horn. And then he wields the responsibility to the viewer. It's time for the exposition fairy. It is time for us to know what this horn is and what it's all about. And so we have a scene where the British man. Who I want to stress, in my opinion, is almost identical to Shane. Sans mustache. And also, because you did, maybe you didn't pick up the fact that he was British, he scolds Shane for not stocking sherry in his bar. I just want to make sure everyone's that's, aware. That, that's very important. I agree with it. We then have this super awkward exposition scene where they're walking around the apartment, talking casually and bantering as he's laying out all this exposition about the history of the horn and why it's so valuable. Uh, and again, the casual way they treat this 
kind of makes it hard to really register. And I understand that in a movie like this, when you need to have a scene of exposition, it often does stop the narrative cold. So they were trying to do it in an interesting way. It didn't really get carried off well. And I also want to note, exposition scenes do stop the narrative cold. So it was kind of odd that in this movie, there were at least three exposition scenes explaining the horn in much the same way giving us information we already have. There was well, this scene. You know, they know we're dumb motherfuckers, so they just got to really make sure that we're taking notes and got it all down. There was this scene. There is a scene later on where Shane explains the horn to his secretary. And then, bizarrely, there is a scene where at some random point we are shown a page of a newspaper that has an article about the horn. That looked less like a newspaper and more like a community newsletter that was sent around. So apparently they live in a city where like so little is going on that somebody like it looked like something that you could do on like Microsoft Publisher nowadays. It, it, it looked like something you'd see on a bulletin board at a grocery store. <laughs> I mean, if this was going on here where we live, I would definitely want to know about it <laughs> so I could avoid all these people. Um, one thing to note, though, is that... Uh, Instead of inexplicably, um, you know, I guess in the Maltese Falcon and I think in the original story, uh, the central MacGuffin or the object everyone is going after, the treasure, is um, supposedly, um, isn't it something to do with, you know, the Knights of Malta or or the Knights Templar? Yeah. Basically, it's some medieval stuff, you know, where they, um, the Knights Templar were horrifically suppressed by the French at some point. So they put all, you know, allegedly put all their jewels onto this Maltese bird. And, um, you know, hit it and it was allegedly lost at sea. In this one, they say, "Mm, no, we're going to do something kind of similar, but a little bit different. And for some reason, you know, tied to the Song of Roland, a um, medieval poem about a guy who's not good at asking for help. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I don't really get, I I mean, I shouldn't be irritated by that change because it's not a huge deal. and, And the Maltese Falcon is ultimately just kind of a symbol for something rather than important. But I just, I don't know why they made that change. And I don't know why, you know, the, the whole legend is, oh, well, the the, uh, the Saracens, you know, the, the, the Moors who Roland was fighting were so angry about him blowing his horn that they, you know, took the horn and stuffed it with jewels. Like, what? The, the, the stupid. <laughs> like... That's I, lo- like saying, I love like, your pithy insights. Kevin, Kevin, I hate I hate that you blew this horn, and I, I want to disrespect your memory, so let me just jam a bunch of 20s down it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Something about that really rubs me the wrong way. Maybe that I had to read the Song of Roland in college, and I just, I, I just don't understand it. It's an odd choice. I don't understand it. Frankly, it's not even in the top 10 odd choices. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I... <laughs> Maybe I just think of maybe I just think of you know pr- media properties where the song of Roland was used more effectively. Like I'm thinking of um, Confidential Agent by Graham Greene, the short story. You know they reference Song of Roland, and it's not totally stupid. I'm not an expert on the Song of Roland. I'm confident that any other time it's been used in pop culture, it's been used better. <laughs> <laughs> Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's probably true. <laughs> I, I think it's important to note that they have this scene of exposition with Shane and the uh, British guy. And some racism sprinkled that's in. That's what I'm saying. This is, that's why I would be, the scene ends how? I'm not going to say the line. I, I don't think it's worth repeating. But basically, a joke is made about black people that's 
just comes out of absolutely nowhere and is just disgustingly racist. So it just adds just another sour, terrible note in this just awful, awful stew. It doesn't reveal anything about Shane's character that we didn't already know. Shane's the one that makes the joke because uh, we knew Shane's an asshole. Yeah, we, we, we know knew. he's totally irredeemable. He's just a just a chauvinistic bigot that you just want to kick. I don't blame the previous city for kicking him out of town because I would too. And if, if for some reason you're not sure yet whether or not he's an asshole and this, this racist line doesn't even push it over the edge, you're still, oh, maybe he's an okay guy. What happens next might seal the deal. He goes back to his office. And what does he discover there, Anya? His uh, his blonde secretary is uh, hysterical and locked in the closet because the British thief shoved her in there. And she comes out and is all upset and I assume, out. I, I assume he comforts her, asks what happened, tells her it's going to be okay, uh, has a heart-to-heart talk with her. Is that what happens? Yeah. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, naturally... Um, you know, he basically does the equivalent. He doesn't literally do this, but he does the equivalent of like, you know, slaps her on the butt and says, perk up, sweetie. And then he says, I've got an idea. Don't you have an uncle who knows about medieval stuff? Yes, yes. So uh, conveniently, this secretary who's just been presumably physically assaulted um, and shoved into a closet, he makes her uh, pen a letter to her um, uncle, who happens to be uh, a professor of uh, me- medieval art or history or, or some such, has some such medieval expertise at a college somewhere. And so they write up a letter. And of course, it's written in kind of like jokey 1930s casual talk or something where they're like, we heard the the French and the Spaniards had a bit of a disagreement and see and like, <laughs> and I was just thinking, imagine this like studious academic you know, goes into his department's office, get, looks at his mail, opens the letter. Oh, it's from my niece. She's kind of a, a, a dimwit, but let's see what she has to say. And he get this bizarre letter asking about if maybe the Song of Roland, you know, a, a fictional work could have actually, you know, happened. And maybe there's a big horn with some jewels jammed into it. I mean, like, just what are you thinking there as you're sitting in your office, all your books around you, all this all this achievement has brought you here. This, this is what my life has come to. <laughs> having to having to help my dipshit niece and her awful boss figure out if <laughs> figure out if maybe there's a real horn jammed with jewels. I don't know. I just thought about that guy. That may be my favorite character in the whole story. <laughs> we don't even see him. Yeah. <laughs> Although he play his his missives play a key role in the denouement of the story but we're getting ahead of ourselves yes next Shane goes to see betty davis in her apartment and there's some bantering he's kind of like swinging around and she says oh you're like king kong i know you like that kevin as a big as the consummate king kong fan i'm consummate <laughs> Gee, get out let's <laughs> <laughs> just take my my skimmer and go yeah <laughs> Yeah, so th- that's a lot of fun. Real real sexy, real light. Not really. It's just it's all very silly and 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 dead. She 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 pulls a gun on him, right? And then yeah. she frisks him and he says something like in a girlish voice about whether he gets a baby doll to take home if she guesses his weight. And it's just so, like So you see they're they're trying maybe dialogue like that would work and maybe even be potentially a little bit sexy if we thought these characters had any kind of an attraction 
to each other. Yeah, or like a you know an anchoring in the plot. You know, it's it's not it's not just to say that nobody really seems to have a relationship with one another, good or bad, but it's also like they don't have a relationship to the things that are happening to them in the story. Everything's kind of like floating around gravitationalist basically because nobody cares about anything. Yeah, nobody cares. They're just making jokes. They don't take any of it seriously. Why should we care about it? And and what were you uh, I, th- I think you had a, a key observation about this. Yeah, I, I thought ultimately at this point, watching this movie felt a bit like running through waist-deep water, which if you've ever done it, is very difficult, while somebody stands on a boat yelling out knock-knock jokes at me on a megaphone. Just like, it's a slog, it's not funny, it's insulting, it's just nothing is working out. The suspense elements and the comedic elements and the romantic elements and basically anything you could throw in this picture is just bouncing off, you know, the other elements in a very ineffective way from a storytelling perspective. So then at this point, we cut away briefly to a scene where a police officer gets bribed by a foul smelling cigar. Then we cut back to the. I mean, we could talk about that scene if you want. Well, I mean, do you think it adds a lot? You know, just randomly cutting and it's, it's a cop being like, why are you standing here? Don't worry about it, officer. Here's a shitty cigar. All right. I mean, like, why even Why even pay that cop? Why even pay the actor playing the cop for that scene? I just don't even. There's so many inexplicable little moments like that where you're like, what What, what was this supposed to do? <laughs> I, I, I wish I had an answer. All it does is suggest a little bit of a passage of time. Because we have that scene, and then we cut back to the apartment, and uh, Shane is basically announces his, his intention to leave, and Betty Davis goes in the other room, and then Shane like makes and she closes her bedroom door, and Shane makes kind of like a little bit of a mugging like like oh like a mugging face like oh I've got an idea I'm a pretty clever boy, and so he says so long everybody, and he goes and he opens up her door, and then he closes it he stays in the room and then he goes over to her bedroom door and he makes another comical face and says hey i'm king kong so is the implication <laughs> yeah that's how i want that was like our first night together men take notes <laughs> just pretend trick a woman trick a woman into thinking you left her apartment and then tell her that you're king kong is the implication there that the two of them uh, did the deed did the do as you will Kevin, I don't even want to think about it, frankly. Okay. Perhaps we should move on. <laughs> um, when he meets, uh, well, let's talk about maybe the Maltese Falcon. Who's one of the central uh, villains? Central villain in the, the picture is a character named Gutman, who is portrayed by Sidney Greenstreet. Uh, actually, Mr. Greenstreet's first uh, role on film. He was in his uh, early 60s, I believe. He was kind of a portly gentleman who had a real strong presence. In this movie, that character, who I, I called Good Woman, <laughs> is played by a portly female actor. And I think that's an interesting choice that could have uh, been handled in uh, a fascinating way. Yeah, I thought that was great. I think there's no reason that Goodman has to be a man, and this lady could have probably done a decent job if she had any uh, material to work with. Uh, How do you think that choice played out? Well, I mean, stupid, just like every other choice in this film. I mean, we start off meeting her, and she's 
literally stroking a kitten. <laughs> Just classic bad guy cliche 101. You know, she doesn't really project a lot of intimidation. I mean, I think with with uh with you know Goodman and in, in the Maltese Falcon, you know, he he seems he seems like he's got his, you know, web spun and and you know knows about everything that's going on and he's kind of intimidating and and you don't really know what he knows and you know he's an intriguing character they didn't really give this poor lady much by way of an intimidation factor you know we're informed by shane that she you know is this formidable foe who's known to police across the country and if she's in town that means that uh things are getting hot and crazy but she didn't really seem all that menacing and again, things that perhaps should have seemed scary or frightening are played for laughs. Like at one point, she tries to drug Shane by giving him a, a drink that's been laced with sleeping powder. And he says, well, you know, guess what? This cigarette I gave you, I laced it with some sleeping drugs, too. And they just both kind of laugh and say, oh, why you? <laughs> You're so bad. <laughs> You're such a scamp. <laughs> They literally like start laughing together and like walk off arm in arm after that scene. There's also um I want to note cuz this is important. Somebody at some point, oh, I believe Shane says that they've been playing a game of bugle bugle where's the bugle and I thought that that would have been a more apt title than the very confusing Satan metal lady. <laughs> it would fit the whole vibe of this bullshit much better. In the apartment he sees that Veray man, who is a henchman of Good Woman, has stolen uh, Shane's pipe case. And, you know, Shane's had partners die, he's had secretaries assaulted, doesn't bother him a bit. But this pipe case being stolen, he starts yelling and screaming and hooting and hollering. And I just, I just think he's such a shallow person that all he cares about are, are possessions like that. You know, like, as you said, it's it's just so hollow. And, and, and here you have... Him and Berayman screaming at each other, like not not having some quippy banter. They're just literally screaming at one another. And at one point, Shane tries to strangle him over this pipe case incident. <laughs> he literally tries to. Strangle this is like the emotional high point in the. This is the high water mark in terms of emotion conveyed in the film because everything else is just played so flip, and people are dying. And oh, I'm so clever, I'm Shane. But this pipe case. He also pulls his hat down over his face, perhaps in an effort to smother the man. Yeah, I mean, and if you're wondering, okay, well, maybe Shane's one of those characters where he kind of plays everything real flip, but maybe there's more to him than that. There isn't. There's nothing. You're not given any sense of, like, he's just being flipped to deal with the world. There's nothing like that. He just, he does not give a crap. So Shane... Oh, and it's just, it's just disturbing where you've had this whole, like, calm... You know, that scene with the beret man felt a bit like if you went to the grocery store. Just think about this. You're at the grocery store. You're getting all your all your stuff ready. You're putting it all in your cart. And then some some guy down the aisle just randomly starts screaming. And people are running over trying to figure out what's wrong. And he just is not. Like, how ominous is that? That's how this felt. Because it's like we're in this just crappy, mediocre film. Mediocre is probably generous. And and nobody's really conveying any emotion. And all of a sudden, Shane just starts screaming the minute the fat lady or whatever, Gutman lady, leaves the the scene. And he's screaming and he's jumping on this guy and he's strangling him, trying to smother him with his beret. And it's just, it's disturbing, frankly. It's very disturbing. It added a new layer of horror onto this whole thing. 
So Shane leaves the apartment. The beret man is screaming at, at Good Woman, saying, I want to kill that fella. And she says, well, maybe you can kill him, but wait till we get the horn. And then Shane goes back to his office, and we learn that the secretary's uncle is written back. We don't learn every bit of the content of that letter just it's yet. It's basically a never contact me again. <laughs> <laughs> but he says that it is plausible. And there's more things he says in that letter, but that doesn't come up until later. Yeah, they're going to save that. And then the uh, British man who had earlier uh, assaulted the secretary and shoved her into a closet returns and gives the secretary flowers, which she loves. Uh, tell me a bit about the actor that played the British guy. T- to me, I always think of this actor for... Uh, What's his name? Name's Arthur Treacher. And he became well-known in the 70s because he had a, a nationwide chain of fish restaurants, Arthur Treacher's Fish and Chips. So every time I saw him in this movie, I just thought about him eating fish and chips. <laughs> and it never happened. So I was let down by that. There's no fish eating in this picture. Yeah, of, of all the stereotypical Britishisms they could have put in, that could have been one of them. Yeah, it would have been a little bit of foreshadowing. For uh, the, the direction his life took later. A little bit of fun for all you fast food fans out there. Yeah, fast food fun. Instead, well. Tell us. <laughs> we just get this cricket stuff, him talking about sharing. That's not cricket. Did you ever get to eat at the uh, the Treacher joints? Uh, I never did because there were none of them uh, around me. Although, uh, after I watched this picture... I did some research, and to my delight, I found out back in the day there used to be 800 of these fucking places. Now there are six. Jesus. And two of them are within driving distance of where we are right now. Wow. Well, listen, given how cursed and bad this flick was, I'm glad that Mr. Treacher got to leave his legacy in another way other than this picture. And I'm sure you're really looking forward to the idea of eating fish and chips there. Yeah, just just thrilled. (laughs) This guy obviously did a lot of quality things. <laughs> no, I'm sure his heart and soul went into the fish and chips because it, it certainly, I mean, I, I don't really blame any of the actors for how bad this was. Obviously, there was yeah, some, I think maybe you should. Uh, listen, I mean, Betty Davis is a good actress. Like, I, I think when, when you have everybody universally doing a bad thing in a film in terms of acting, I think that tends to speak more to the direction that they're being given rather than the talent of the individual actors. And everybody in this is acting flippin' silly. Not a fun way. <laughs> uh, the next scene, I believe, uh, Betty Davis. Can we talk about the newspapers? Okay, we alluded to that before, yeah. but we can talk about that a little bit more. I think we need like... to talk about that in depth. So this is all happening. And, and there was some newspaper coverage of um, Ames's murder and Pharaoh's murder, uh, you know, under the guise of like cemetery double murder earlier in the film. So you saw that that print newspaper. Right. This is not that. This is baffling. We see a kind of almost like a newsletter printout saying, um, you know, it's like a pamphlet almost of like, uh, who's going to die next? What are they going for? Oh, it's this magnificent horn. I mean, information that a newspaper reporter like shouldn't have had at this point. And this this page contains studio quality portraits of some of the characters in the movie that a newspaper could not plausibly have. So I'm like, did did Shane's secretary write this up? Did Shane write it up? Did one of the bad guys write it up? I just, I 
I don't understand where it came from. It was disturbing to say the least. I know I'm fixating on something very small in the scheme of things, but like it just comes out of nowhere. You're like watching the film and then suddenly, you know, a newspaper comes up. That's pretty that's a pretty conventional scene transition trope. But in this case, it's not a newspaper. It's just this like random pamphlet that somebody whipped up on Microsoft Word or, or you know, Microsoft Publisher maybe. They got fancy. And put out there about what's going on. And I just was wondering who was responsible for this. And we never learn. We never learn. That's the real mystery. <laughs> Who's documenting this? <laughs> I I feel like it was just the studios. Maybe studio heads watched this and were like, how are we supposed to remember the stakes under all this jiggly layer of stale comedy? And just were like, you know what? Let's just slap together something to remember that like lives and a big fancy horn are on the line here, folks. <laughs> then uh, there's the scene where Betty Davis and Shane are bantering, and she makes uh, a quip about uh, losing, about how she had the horn, but she lost it in the bath. Yeah, this 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 picture has a lot of sex stuff. It has a lot of weird sexual hangups. I feel it's not sexy at oh, all. It's not the least bit, but sexy. it's very horny. <laughs> No pun intended. This movie is about as sexy as coating your body in like dry ice. <laughs> so then we have another extraneous scene where a group of random uh, middle-aged white men show up in Shane's office. They announce... What are their names? What, what's what's their group called? Uh, they're some kind of city fathers. <laughs> I, I don't remember what... I don't think the movie really cares who they are, but... They tell Shane that if he doesn't clear up the murders in like 24 hours, he has to get out of town. Unclear how they'd have the authority to to order him out of town. Unclear how they would enforce it. A lot of things unclear. It doesn't really go anywhere. I think it's trying to set up like a, like a ticking clock sort of thing. I'm going to say this. Like in, in any other movie, they'd be really heinous. And like, you know, in real life, these kind of guys would be just heinous, heinous folks, right? But... It's, it speaks to how much I hate Shane that I kind of felt sorry for them and I kind of understood what they were trying to do by railroading this guy or getting this guy who's just caused nothing but mayhem and trouble out of town. He's just, he sucks that bad. Then I'm siding with these horrible city fathered gruesomes over him. And Shane says to them, uh, what, do you want to beat my pants off? Oh yeah, he calls them the city papas. He really has a daddy fixation or something. Is this the point where Shane gets a call to go down to the docks and there he's supposed to find there uh, a ship, a real ship, not a toy ship, an actual ship that people use for transit and to haul freight, an actual real-life ship. He's supposed to find this on fire. What we find there... <laughs> is even by 1936 standards, it's like they went to the dime store, bought a little toy ship, put it in a little bathtub, and put a match on it. It was embarrassing. Who set my favorite tugboat on fire in my bathtub? They're sending a message. But apparently the ship, the real ship, was set on fire in order of some great scheme in order to uh, root out the horn. What I, happens now? Well, I'm going to say, I thought this scene, maybe I'm, maybe I just am cliched, but I, I, I like a good 
rainy, dark, down by the docks kerfluffle. Yeah, yeah it's raining. And also, as the scene opens, uh, boom, boom, two people get shot. Well, no, I'm going to say I thought this scene had promise, you know, because, again, I, I'm a sucker for a good rainy, down by the docks kerfluffle. But in this case, you know, immediately you have no idea who's been shot or what the hell is going on. And you have a bunch of people running around in rain slickers and it's just a <laughs> goddamn mess. And, and everyone's shouting. You, you can't even really follow what's happening in this scene. And, and you know, so suddenly it seems like Shane was shot. Then it looks like someone else was shot. Then suddenly you have Shane confidently lounging atop a crate, you know, claiming claiming to have the trumpet. And meanwhile, all of the antagonists, Betty Davis, good woman, beret guy, British guy, they're all there and everybody wants this. And whole- I'm going to say, like, you know, he just ends up on this crate and like part of the Part of the, you know, storytelling 101 you would think would be, you know, we want to see the protagonist struggle to get what he wants. So when le- when you suddenly just, you know, make it look like he was shot and then suddenly have him sitting on top of a crate smile- smiling smugly at everyone, you know, it just it just I, makes I, me hate him more. <laughs> I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're saying things weren't quite cricket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God. <laughs> So at this point, there's a tedious scene where all of the antagonists are trying to convince Shane to let them have the horn. And he ends up selling the horn to, I believe, is a good woman? Yeah, and let's reflect on maybe the, the, the similar scene in the Maltese Falcon where you have Sam Spade, the hero in that, negotiating with all the villains and, and trying to figure out what to do. I mean, he's, it, has, it has tension. It has suspense. You don't know what he's going to do. You know, these people are dangerous and somebody might start shooting if he doesn't think quickly and come to a good solution for everybody. I mean. And in this one, we have moments where Shane is doing things like hitting Beret Guy on the head with a horn. So it's kind of played more for laughs. It's definitely played more for laughs. And even things where he's trying to convince um, the good woman to sell out her nephew slash henchman Beret Man. Um there's no emotional weight behind that because it also just doesn't come to anything. And, you know, everybody ends up arrested within like five seconds. It's not... Not quite everybody. Ah, yes. Not quite everybody. So he ends up selling the horn to a uh, good woman and there's no diamonds in it. And then the police come. Everybody except for Shane and Betty Davis gets arrested. And he he reveals to Betty Davis a little bit later that... There was something in that letter from the uncle that made me realize there weren't any diamonds in that horn at all. So I didn't betray you even in the slightest when I sold the horn. I just didn't want to rip you off. So then Shane uh, tells his secretary to get train tickets for him and Betty Davis to get out of town. So they, you know, it kind of, you know, a bit of a callback to the first scene where he's being run out of town in his previous city. So they're on the train. They're getting all cozy. They start talking about the uh, murder of Ames, and while they're doing this, potentially very important information that that Shane should really be interested in. He's clowning around with the horn, which he still inexplicably has, and even blows on it. It really blew the scene, I think. <laughs> Sorry. In the course of this scene, uh, Shane uh, reveals that he knows. Betty Davis killed Ames, and Betty Davis admits it. 
and then the train stops. It's sort of like it's sort of like he's like, I know you ate my last hot pocket, and she's like, Yeah. I mean, like it. There's no. And she says it's so swell that uh, you didn't turn me in, and you and you forgave me for it. Now we can be happy and have fun. He says, "Golly, that sounds great." And then the train stops. He goes to get the cops. Because it turns out that he told his secretary to wire notice to the police to stop him and his sweetie on the next stop because he knew he could get Betty Davis to confess if if she felt that uh she'd gotten away with it. In the Bogart version. When he turns the uh, Betty Davis character over to the police, yeah, he has, he has real feelings for her, and he's very tortured about what he has to do. What about in this picture? So basically, it's takes this potentially like emotional climax of the film, you know, or really the climax of the film, where he's he's making this choice between love and doing the right thing, and instead it just you know, these cops haul Betty Davis off in handcuffs and she's basically just yelling at him over the train sounds about how, you know, he met his match in her and maybe one day someone else will even be smarter than her and they'll marry him. And it's just, it's this whole unhinged rant about how... It's like some bizarre female empowerment speech out of nowhere that I've proven to you that a woman can be just as smart as you. Yeah, you're a misogynistic boar, but for some reason it was important for me to teach you that, you know... Uh, a, a skirt can get one over on you sometimes. Then she disappears, and then all of a sudden, the secretary reappears and says, "Guess what? Now it's time for fun." It, it, and it's good night, everybody. You know the what? I, if I had to sum up this movie in one word, you know what that word is? Undignified. <laughs> the whole thing was undignified. It was beyond bad. It was like people just scrounging around, making fools of themselves with this crappy dialogue and crappy vibe. Was it somehow worse because you have such a high opinion of the other version? Yeah, I think I, I think I said this to you, but it, it sort of felt like watching a beloved role model who I respect more than anyone in the world um, rolling around in the gutter, screaming, ranting, shit-faced drunk, covered in filth. It was like... What has brought you to this low state? Why are you doing this? It was just bafflingly bad. I think trying to make it a comedy was a real problem. But at the same time, I feel like in more competent hands, it could have been at least less bad. Maybe not good, but certainly less bad. But it, the, the movie just seems so preoccupied with showing you that it doesn't care about anything and that nothing matters. It just becomes absurd after a certain point. Is that your unvarnished take? It's my unvarnished take. I deeply regret watching the movie. I don't recommend that anyone else ever watch it again. It's utterly irredeemable. Nothing of value. Satan met a lady can go straight to hell. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me. That's mystery underscore to underscore me underscore. And at mystery to me podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at mystery to me podcast at gmail.com. We're not teens setting up Hotmail accounts in the early 2000s, so all of those spell out two as T-O. Thanks Thanks so so much much for for listening. listening.